if you could begin making your way back to your seats, and as you do, grab your Bibles and head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's not every year that the text we are walking through during any given sermon series fits directly with either Christmas or Easter. Um, But it does happen occasionally, and this morning is one of those mornings where it happens. And so if you're wondering, are we actually going to talk about the resurrection? Are we just going to kind of march on through 1 Corinthians? Well, the answer is we're going to do both. We're going to keep working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. But in doing so, this section, these verses specifically outline what it is that we refer to and call the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And I mentioned a little bit just in the beginning about this empty tomb, this grave that no longer is occupied. And and I want to be real careful to not in any way somehow make one event of this weekend more or less significant than any other event of this weekend. And by that I mean, I am not in any way trying to say that Good Friday matters more than Easter Sunday or that Easter Sunday matters more than Good Friday. I mean, you can't have one without the other. However, if the guy doesn't rise from the grave, he's just another man that was put to death. He's just another one of many, and on that, on, that, on that particular day, one of three that was crucified. And you don't have the accomplishment of redemption on Friday without the empty tomb on Sunday. And as believers, we gather, as I mentioned, every week because of this empty tomb. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 15, if if, if Christ has not risen from the grave, your faith is futile. And you, we, are above all to be pitied the most. But he has risen from the grave. The tomb is empty, just as he said it would be. And so we gather because of this gospel, because of this Jesus that lived, that died, and that rose again. Now, let's think through just briefly here this morning, what exactly is this gospel? And I think in the simplest way that I can try and explain it, because there's a lot of ways we could do that, there's a lot of detail we could give, I think in the simplest way to explain it is the gospel reconciles us. To God. The gospel is, is news. It's, it's the proclamation that you and I can be reconciled to God. It's what we sing about at Christmas time and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's what Linus turned to Charlie Brown and said, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. I mean, it's this idea that we have been reconciled. That the good news is that we can be restored in a relationship with God. And in some sense, to say the gospel is anything other than that, and that alone, is to tread in some really, really precarious ways. 
towards a message that is against or anti-gospel. Let me try to give you a few examples about that. If we were to say that Jesus came so that we could go to heaven, it's not in and of itself directly incorrect, but it's sliding in that direction. Because heaven's not the goal. God is the goal. See, in the gospel, we get God. We don't get heaven. Heaven may be the place where we find ourselves for eternity. The new earth may be the place that we find ourselves for eternity, enjoying the presence of God forever. But that is not the point. The point is that we get God. And we will be in his presence and we will enjoy him forever. Now, there's a couple things that play into that. One is it it, it guards us from somehow characterizing or mischaracterizing this good news as an invitation to float on a cloud with a tiny gold harp and a set of angel wings for the rest of your days. And when you think about it, there's not really that much there that's exciting. I mean, so you're telling me that, like, if I trust in Jesus, I can kind of just float around for a while Maybe play an instrument that I don't really ever see played ever and get a set of wings. I mean, like, it it falls so short. But there's this mischaracterization of what the gospel is that, like, we've made it something other than God. Now, now the the contrast to that is, is that the creator of all things, of everything, The uncaused cause, the one who had no beginning and has no end and spoke all things into being by the word of his power, invites you and I to enjoy him forever. That'll pay the bills. See, in the gospel, we get God. Is there a promise of heaven? Yes. Let's not dismiss that in any way, shape, or form. But the gospel is not the promise of heaven as a primary. We get God. There are some that even want to say that the gospel, the good news, is that we get to do good things here on earth. It's a mischaracterization of the gospel. The gospel is not that you and I get to go make disciples. Now, do we get to make disciples? Yes. Is that our mission as a church? Yes. Did Jesus tell us and command us to go and make disciples? Yes. Are we to obey him in that? Absolutely. But that's not why, or that's not what the good news is. It's a little kid's song. I will make you fishers of men. Anybody have the next part? If you follow me. Let's just think about how that breaks down. Okay, just the language of that. And you've maybe never parsed the the grammar and the language of little kid Bible songs, but we're going to do so today. Maybe have some fun, maybe not. All right, the word if is a conditional word. It implies that something needs to be true for something else to be true. It's cause and effect. So I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. Me, that statement says that the primary goal that we should be after is making fishers of men. And that Jesus is the means to accomplish that end. It's a mischaracterization of the gospel. 
And it's actually not what Jesus said. Jesus said, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. There's no condition. There's no cause and effect in the sense of a conditional clause that has to be met. The command is to follow. And what happens as we do is we do this thing called make disciples. So we just got to be clear about how we think about these things, especially on a morning like this as we think about the gospel, as we think about good news, because it, it, the gospel is us being reconciled to God. That is the good news. And for us to understand the good news, we have to first understand the bad. We've been thinking about this over the last several weeks, that the gospel, this good news, is equally bad news for all who have sinned. And it is equally good news for all who trust in Jesus. We're going to see that on display in our text this morning. And our text tells us and reveals to us and highlights for us that there are two very distinct yet equally important needs that we have that Jesus Christ fulfills. And we're going to see both of these on display. I'll just put them on the screen here for you. They're going to show up in our text in verses 9, 10, 11. But the first need is that we need forgiveness. The second is that we need righteousness. Now, they, they may sound similar, and they are similar, but they are not identical. They are distinct, but they are equally important. And they are the two things that we need to be reconciled to God. We need forgiveness, and we need righteousness. Now, we can use the word pay to try to illustrate these differences and how these interact with each other. And even in our society, setting aside all spiritual things or any conversation you might have from the Bible or from church, just the way we use the word pay in our society can help us unpack this. We use the word pay in, in two different ways at the very least. Okay, So today you could go to Martin's Supermarket and you could pay for jelly beans, which, to set the record straight, the Starburst-flavored ones are absolutely the best. And you're paying something to get something back. You're paying something to get something back. If you have ever paid money to have membership in a club... You are paying something to get something in return. Perhaps, and this can be a temptation that we face here. It is certainly one that I've heard spoken of elsewhere. Sometimes we even try to use our money to gain or earn influence. Where if I'm going to give a bunch of money, then I'm going to also be right there expressing my opinion about how all of that is used. And it can be a measure of that. And it's not wrong to have, a, have concern over how those funds are used. But if you're, if you're trying to control with generosity, we kind of tread in some, some wrong ways. The idea here is earning. It's gaining and it's this idea of righteousness, of our need of righteousness. And we use the word pay in our society to express this idea of gaining something. But we also use the word pay in our society to express the idea of atoning for 
something. So any of you ever have any children that have ever said, you're going to pay for that? Eh? No, nobody? All right. Thank you, Genova. Love the honesty. All right. It, never mind. <laughs> he owned it. There we go. Now, it might be that they broke something. And there's a consequence to pay for what was broken. It might be that one of the kids was just running around and some one of the other kids did something that the other kid didn't like and they're chasing them. You're going to pay for that. And there's this idea of atonement. It's the idea of I'm going I'm to enact a pound of flesh from you. Thank you, Shakespeare. And this isn't necessarily in and of itself incorrect. I mean, our legal system is built on this. There's certain punishments for certain crimes. And it's just this, this concept of atonement. And, and I remember as a kid being told, you know, don't do the crime if you can't pay the time. Some way along the way, there's even the realization that some crimes can't actually be paid for. And it at times feels like justice hasn't been carried out because of something that was done where the punishment didn't seem to fit the crime. So these things break down even in a societal way. But the idea of atoning, this idea of payment for atonement, this idea that tries to get after our need for forgiveness. Now, this word pay can then get expressed in a spiritual sense where we try in and of ourselves to get after both of these needs. We try to find some way to pay back God for the sin that we've done. And I think we can understand this one a little better than the next one and our need for righteousness because we have a concept even societally, even as parents, of kind of this cause and effect, consequences for actions. And, and, and we, we have this, this kind of gut reaction that there's a need for us to pay for the wrong that we've done. That we need to somehow make amends. That we have done things, we have sinned against God, and we have to somehow make it right. But the reality is, and this is part of the bad news, is you and I can't ever pay back or atone for the wrong that we've done. But the good news is that Jesus has done this, and he satisfies this first need of ours, this need for forgiveness. And Paul would write in Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven, there's our need, we need forgiveness, he has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The illustration there, the imagery that Paul is using there, is that all of your stuff, all of your past stuff, all of your stuff, today's stuff, all of your stuff, tomorrow's stuff, is, is stuff that you can't earn forgiveness for. But it was all written down on some giant sheet of paper, a big old contract that at the end of it explained the terms that you were guilty of and there are consequences for those actions, but it was nailed to the cross 
with Jesus. And it has been completely forgiven. You and I have been forgiven all of our trespasses and the record of debt that stood against us has been satisfied. This is why, church, we sing Jesus paid it all, not Jesus paid most of it. Because past, present, and future, he has paid for our sins. I heard it said this way this past week, we don't bleed for him, he bled for us. And this pursuit of trying to make amends with God through our actions will never satisfy what God requires. But Jesus did. Jesus paid it all. The second idea of we need righteousness is an idea that we don't necessarily have as much framework in our society or our families to try to unpack and understand, but it is significant. And Jesus unpacks a little bit of this in Matthew 5, 20, and he says there, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a statement there that is very, very similar to what is in our text in 1 Corinthians 6 this morning. Jesus is saying this, hey, I want, you to, I want you to look around the room for a moment, and I want you to find the people that are the holiest people that you know, that spend all of their time and all of their days doing all of the, the most religious things that you can think of. You've got to be better than them if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if he was trying to remove all doubt... 28 verses later, he says, but look, it's not just enough to be better than the guy next to you. You have to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's actually the standard that you have to meet. That's actually the bar that you have to climb to. It's not just enough to be better than the person next to you or the person across the room from you. You have to have a perfection that is on par with the perfection of God himself. This is one of those statements that takes all of the oxygen out of the room. This is one of those statements that lands as a heavy blow that if you if you, if you get your mind wrapped around it and if you can begin to kind of unpack the significance of this and the, the, just the picture of who God is in this statement and in these statements, it is a heavy, heavy weight. We need righteousness. We need a, a perfection that is on the level of God's perfection And we just kind of look around and perhaps in the mirror and go, it's not ever going to happen. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's not ever going to happen, but we try to earn through actions. We try to earn through actions. I mean, they're, they're within our culture is, is a bit of a caricature of certain people who just go to church on Easter's and Christmases because they think they've done something to notch themselves some favor. This is this idea of trying to earn something yourself. We have these two needs. We have the need for forgiveness and we have the need for righteousness. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we see both of those needs on display and we see both of those needs 
fulfilled. Go to the text. Let's look at verse 9 together and what Paul has to write there. He says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I told you that that statement is very, very similar to Matthew 5.20, and it is, because you both have a statement about the kingdom, and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, they're not different kingdoms. It's just an expression saying the same thing. The best way for us to understand that in context is just salvation. It's just the idea of being in God's presence for eternity. Eternity. It's this idea of being saved. It's with God. It's being reconciled to God. And Paul says, look, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? That word unrighteous literally means those without righteousness. We need righteousness. It's one of the two primary needs That we have, and those who do not have it will not inherit the kingdom of God. And time's not going to permit us to go to Galatians 5, but there we would see almost identical language as in 1 Corinthians 6. Time will not permit us to go to Revelation 21, but there we would see almost identical language as in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 about this idea that without righteousness we will not be reconciled to God. We will not spend eternity with God. That There's no salvation for the unrighteous. And we have this need. Paul continues and says, but do not be deceived. He begins to express the other need that we have. The first need that is outlined in verse 9 is this need for our righteousness because the unrighteous those without righteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God the second need will be expressed in the form of a command that begins with do not be deceived that word deceived means do not be misled do not be mistaken and it's written in such a way that he is commanding you and I to be busy doing something He's commanding you and I to be active doing something. And what we're to be actively doing is making sure that we're not being misled. That we're not somehow being mistaken about the nature of the gospel and our need for forgiveness and our need for righteousness. That we, that we take very, very cautious endeavors to make sure that our, our minds are thinking biblically. Not as the world would want us to believe, not as what we often hear around the idea here, if I may illustrate it, is is this. Don't be lulled to sleep like a little baby. I was thinking about this this past week, and when we brought Tobin home, it was about six months after we got him home, and he was probably about three months after his heart surgery, and we got the family together for a Christmas dinner, and we made homemade pasta, and homemade sauces, and we had pasta rollers and cutters, and we cut out our own spaghetti, and it was a mess, and we spent hours putting this meal together, but it was such a fun time, and then we finally got to eat. And we all just sat around the table, and by we all, I mean the adults, just sat around the table, stunned at this little kid, who I kid you not, ate for an hour kid's like 12 pounds at this point in his life. I mean, we're like, he ate that much spaghetti. We're not sure where exactly it went, but 
about 45 minutes into it, his eyelids start getting heavy. The starch and the pasta and the sauce and the warmth of all of it just started to take its effect on his little body. And we've actually got a video of it. It's hilarious. And he never actually fell asleep with his head in his pasta like his cousin has done before. But we certainly thought it was going in that direction. And this is what Paul is saying. Don't let yourself be lulled to sleep. Don't be deceived because the world is going to say this. They're going to say, hey, where is this God? Have you ever seen him? We can prove from science that he doesn't exist. We can, we can go to the lab and we can, we can show you how the evolutionary model of things is the, is the reason why we have life today. And we can explain all of what appears to be unexplainable. So where is this God that you claim exists? And from there, it's not really that far of a stretch to then jump to, if he doesn't exist, you're not accountable to him. And if you're not in any way accountable to him, if there's not an authority that you have to submit to that one day you will have to answer to and give account for your actions before, then the next message is not at all surprising either. It's do what makes you happy. You just go do you. Do what feels good. Chase it as hard as you can. Don't be deceived. Don't be lulled to sleep by this message that there's not a God that you're accountable to. And so, you know what? You just do what makes you happy. Because Paul's going to now list a whole bunch of things that in and of themselves, for those practicing these things, would have led to temporal happiness. Because that's how sin works. When we find ourselves saying yes to sin, it's because we've bought into the lie that it's going to give us some happiness that somehow we think we're missing. That it will provide us something that we don't currently have. And he runs through this list then, beginning in verse 9. Neither the sexually immoral, or the adulterers, or the idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. And you have this phrase, the kingdom of God, bookending and highlighting for us both of these needs. The first is, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you not know that that will not happen? And the second is, those who have not been forgiven will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now let's just chat about the list here for a minute. We're not going to break down the list I think the function of the list at this point in the book and as Paul's writing about it and what he's intending to highlight and magnify and shining the spotlight on forgiveness in Jesus Christ and the righteousness that we are given through him is this. You and I are often prone and tempted to look around at each other and compare ourselves to each other. And Paul says, no, don't look around. You look up. Don't look around, look up. Because you and I can be prone to go, I'm not as bad as that guy. 
I didn't do that. I never cheated on my wife. I never did this. I never, did, I never embezzled funds. I ne- whatever it might be. And, and quite frankly, the church has got a great track record of picking and choosing certain sins to make somehow unforgivable. And right now, it's the whole sexual revolution thing that's happening in our society. It's all the LGBTQ plus stuff. It's all the, the homosexuality, marriage stuff. We, we have this propensity to say that's somehow out of bounds and unforgivable and out of the reach of God's grace because look at those people. Look at what they did. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You don't look around. You look up. The gospel is first equally bad news for everybody. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you can look at that list and go, yeah, I can probably check off a few of those things. It's equally bad news for everybody. But the gospel is also equally good news for everybody. We don't look around to somehow find our measurement of whether God will accept us. Paul says, look up. And as we do... We're confronted with our need for forgiveness and our lack of righteousness. But as we do, we're also confronted with this unbelievable news of the gospel and how Christ has provided for both of our needs. And look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The word washed there can be used to just mean literally take a bath. It might have some baptism overtones, not quite certain. But the idea of being washed from our sins is this idea that we've been forgiven. Any overtones to baptism would be just that those waters, when somebody is baptized, they're doing so because they've been forgiven. Not because that water is magic and washes away anything. But he says this, your need for forgiveness is real. And the good news, the gospel is equally bad news for all. We don't look around, we look up. And as we look up, maybe we begin to understand that I don't have perfection on par with God. What I got is a whole lot of sin And I need forgiveness, and I can't pay for that. I can't somehow atone for that in myself, by myself. And Paul says, but you've been washed. You've been forgiven. What was present, our sin, has been removed. It echoes what he said in Colossians 2, having forgiven all our trespasses, he set them aside, nailing them to the cross. He says, you've been washed. 
what was present has been removed. You've been sanctified. That's a, that's, a, that's a church word. That's a Bible word that just means you've been made holy. That God has set you apart now. And thirdly, he says, you've been justified. You've been declared righteous or you've been made righteous. And here's where this second need we are now told is fulfilled by what Jesus has done. The first need is the need for forgiveness. We've been washed. There's forgiveness that has been given. The second need, our need for righteousness. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You've been made righteous. See, and we, we, don't, we don't totally get the interplay of the words that Paul is using, but this word justified that shows up in verse 11, if you wanted to say that somebody is without justification, you would just put the letter A in front of it in the Greek language. And that's what he does in verse 9. He takes that word, the root of that word, and he just puts the word A or the letter A in front of it to say that you don't have this, but come verse 11, he tells you it's been given to you. And so what was there, our sin has been washed away, but what was missing, our righteousness, this perfection on par with God, that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, it's been given And so our need for forgiveness has been given to us. And our need for righteousness has been given to us. Because Jesus paid it all. In his perfect life that he lived. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus... God counts it as ours. And all of the junk that we've done, whether or not your junk made this list or not, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, it's all forgiven. See, the gospel is equally bad news for all, but it is equally good news for all. And so the question may be for us this morning, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you would say, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I did and you would raise them up and you'd say, yes, I believe in Jesus, the question for you this morning is, is that motivating you to follow him with everything that you have? Because that is the motivation that has been given throughout all of chapter 5 as to why we should obey. It will be the motivation we look at next week for why we should obey. Jesus paid it all, all to him, I owe. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you've not ever trusted in him as your savior you have two needs and there will be motivations in your heart to try to meet those needs and try to pay for that wrong 
try to earn that right. We can't do it. But Jesus has done it for us. And the need that you have for forgiveness is given to you, is met, is fulfilled by this person, Jesus. And you place your faith and trust in him for salvation, as is your need for righteousness, as is your need for perfection. Because our need was significant, and Jesus paid it all. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you have met our needs. And God, I would pray here just in this moment that you might impress upon us these needs that we have. Whether we have trusted in Jesus for salvation, God, the reminder of the totality and the sufficiency and the all-encompassing nature of what Christ has done is worth being reminded of. And would you, would you be gracious and remind us of that and the, the depth of our need that we had for forgiveness and, and the depth of our need that we had for perfection and neither of which we could ever somehow satisfy on our own. Would you remind us of that? God, if there's anyone here that is not trusted in Jesus for salvation, God, would you... Would you teach them of their need? Would you reveal to them their need? Would you impress upon them that they, they have a need for forgiveness? They have a need for righteousness. And they, they need their sin to be washed away. And they need this thing called righteousness to be given to them. And that neither of those needs are ever met through church attendance. Through giving in the offering plate. Through helping old ladies walk across the street or whatever acts of service there might be. They're met at the cross and they're met in the person of Jesus. And so Lord, we say it's in Him our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, and our song. And it's in His good name we pray. Amen.